I'm Dan Sheffrin. And I'm Catherine Joller. And we are the hosts of the podcast, The Space Between, Dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. We are delighted to have with us today architect and designer Stanley Sadowitz, whose installation, Stanley Sadowitz Judaica, will be open here through the fall of 2012. We will be talking with him today, among other things, about the dialogue between art and ritual and between the ancient and contemporary. Mr. Sadowitz, a professor of architecture at the University of California, Berkeley, is a partner at Natoma Architects in San Francisco, and is perhaps best known for his design of the Holocaust Memorial in Boston and Temple Beth Shalom in San Francisco. In 2006, he was a finalist for the Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt National Design Award. Welcome, Mr. Sadowitz. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start first with just a basic question about the new installation here at the museum, which was... Um, what drew you to create these series of Judaica objects? Was there a problem you were perhaps trying to solve, something that you wanted to work out with the idea of ritual or ritual objects? Well, the start was really that um, I was born into a pretty um, orthodox household, and for most of my upbringing, I was used to participating in all of the Jewish ceremonies, and we had ceremonial objects which were used for these ceremonies. When I started studying architecture, my aesthetic sense really changed, and I started questioning the um, quality of many of these things. They were often ornate and um, not in the kind of um, aesthetic sort of framework that I started to think of as beautiful and modern. And then I began to realize that also they didn't really fit with a lot of the Jewish requirements for um, objects because one of the most important um, things about Jewish material culture is that it's supposed to not be figural. It's supposed to be basically abstract. And many of these things had pictures on and um, often text as well, but um, they certainly didn't fulfill that aspect of what I began to understand to be important. And um, as I started thinking more and more about it, um, I started wondering how one could make interesting objects that were um, part of the sort of um, strict regulations that govern Jewish aesthetics and you know, would ultimately end up quite different. And so that was the instinct for doing these things. Can you give us an example of a couple of these objects from childhood? Well, you know, for example, our Hanukkah, which some people call a menorah, was basically um, a bronze piece that had lions all over it, and it was kind of in a cascade with um, the shamus in the middle. But when I started to um, read the texts about the instructions for how the Chanukiah should be lit and used, um, there were some very interesting ideas which made me realize that that object didn't really describe its use. And the one thing is that um, the candles are always added from um, right to left, but they always lit from left to right. And so I thought that an object which actually embodied this aspect of the ceremony directly would be better. And so instead of the shamus being in the middle, I put it on the left and made the 
candle holder actually display the way that it's used. And that was the start of thinking about all of the different ceremonial objects because, you know, every one of them has not only a text but a sort of history of how it was instructed to be used, what its um, purpose is. And like everything about, um, you know, the Jewish religion and culture. There's a lot of discussion of each object and so on. So I started to uh, get interested in reading more about these objects and trying to figure out very sort of direct ways to create the object, to explain some of it in the object itself, which is kind of a modernist idea about, um, you know, the way that uh, things should be sort of self-descriptive and not necessarily ornamental, but functional. Like form should follow function was a dictum of, um, you know, classical modern thought. And so it was sort of bringing some of those ideas to these objects. Um, thinking about your, um, your architectural design, I mean, a lot of design is about uh, working within constraints. And I know architecture, I'm sure there are constraints within the materials and the needs of, of the people that you're working with. Um, how do you compare architectural constraints to those um, that found in creating ritual objects? Um, you know, the, the constraints are really where the creativity um, is, is launched from. And um, so it's, you know, the word constraint is somewhat um, limiting. And I don't necessarily like to think of that as how one starts. But there's conditions always. Because, for example, in architecture, everything revolves around cost. You know, that's, I mean, there's always an ambition and a, a kind of program and a need. But then... The realization of that is always monitored through cost. Obviously, with doing these objects, cost wasn't a primary sort of constraint. But um, what what was the sort of instigator for each of the objects was the kind of text or ritual that um, it was it's used to accomplish. So, for example, the hand washing cup. I mean, one of the ideas of that piece is that it's sort of a cup but it's also a jug and it's slanted to imply the pouring and it has two handles so that each hand can sort of um, be washed with a cup so it's a kind of manifestation of its um, use. I'm thinking about the, well, the ideas of constraints that um, the Sabbath, the Shabbat is a time where there are significant constraints on what Certainly traditional Jews do. You're not supposed to use electronics and turn on lights and things like that. And yet for a lot of people, the constraints actually create the freedom because you are free from your labors and things like that. Um, so I'm wondering about, for instance, Vanessa Ox in um, an essay in uh, Reinventing Ritual, which is the catalog for the show we had here. It was at the Jewish Museum. says that ritual is inherently creative. Um, which I thought was really interesting. You have a ritual, you think of it being ritual, something you do by rote, but that for her, there was something fundamentally creative about that. So I'm wondering about the um, the contradiction or the seeming contradiction between the ritualized piece of a ritual and the creative piece of the ritual and whether that's a contradiction that's interesting or productive for you. Um, you know, I haven't thought about this a lot, but I do find ritual 
to be liberating in a lot of ways. For example, um, I always loved the story that um, Einstein only had one suit. He had many of them, but they were all identical, so that he never had to bother with the thought of what he had to wear that day, which, you know, I've um, often thought is a very liberating thing. Like, if you only have black pants, which is really what I have, then you never have to think about what pants you're going to wear. You know, the color of your shirt becomes a choice. But um, so there's, there, there is a sort of, like, balance between um, things that you don't have to decide every day, which then free up other opportunities. So, you know, I think ritual does perform both the sort of um, framing of certain things and because those things are left out of the question, then focus on other things that become more significant. Um, do you think design has the potential to make a ritual more meaningful? I do think that if the object is a sort of um, restatement of the reason for its being um, rather than something decorative or pretty or um, tangential to what it's being like. Why were the lions on the menorah? You know, the, they brought nothing to the sort of story of Hanukkah, the um, way that the lights have to be um, lit and so on. But, you know, I think if one does have the object um, sort of restating its function and the way you work with it, um, it does reinforce the the ritual. So, you know, the fact that when you light the candle, the candle's on the right side to start with, so you're not, like, taking it from the middle and then going like that. So I do feel like the, um, you know, like beautifully working things make life better. And whether it's, a, um, you know, like a beautiful electronic device like the iPhone, um, which sort of collapses so many of um, the things that one used to have in one's life into one. I mean, I don't use an alarm clock anymore. You know, like I, I don't um, have to travel with a computer. I mean, so many things just sort of like work around this one instrument. And I, I think ritual objects that are... Um, instruments in the same way that collapse their whole history and um, instruction and meaning into the object, um, you know, are condensers and in that sense make the thing more meaningful. I'd love to talk a little bit about your architecture as well. Um, and I'm thinking about, um, well, this is in a way an abstract idea, but I think it plays itself out in some of your some of your work, both the synagogues and the memorials, which is is there such thing as a Jewish experience of space, or is there such thing as an experience that one could or should have in a Jewish space? Um, or maybe more broadly, is there such thing as Jewish space? I think that's a really interesting question. And, you know, the, the sort of power of uh, the Jewish experience is not dependent on space. We're a, we're a uh, anti-spatial um, nation. We lived in the diaspora. We had no sort of homeland or center. Uh, we've sort of survived through time rather than space. And the Jewish world has been 
sort of sustained through ritual and reenactment of ceremony. So the Sabbath, um, Pesach, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, you know, these things that marked my life growing up and have marked every Jew's life through the ages are much more important than the sort of edifice of like a synagogue, which doesn't exist in history in the way that, say, a cathedral does. So Heschel, who was a wonderful commentator of um, Jewish life and culture, said, you know, the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. Like, it's not the buildings. It's the seventh day every week that's marked in time. So in a way, the answer is that, you know, space is not, the important thing for our culture. It's time. And, and you know, it's also the, the stories. It's the word. It's how things um, have been passed down to us. But they haven't been passed down through great artifacts or wonderful architecture. So it's, it's a funny thing to find yourself um, as an architect in a Jewish world and try to unravel the... Um, you know, the, 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 the role that you have and what your work should be. And I think, um, you know, some of the um, mentors that, that I've had um, uh, have pointed in the right direction. Others, I think, point in the very wrong direction. I think there's, you know, been a sort of contemporary movement of Jewish architects which have very much focused on the objecthood of... Um, um, architecture and and on you know very figural sculptural kinds of things to me um, there's a much more interesting um, history of Jewish architecture which isn't about that at all and uh, I mean I think um, you know the the last great Jewish architect I think was Louis Kahn and Louis Kahn was a person who was interested in the spirit of matter but not in the visual or sculptural or formal qualities of matter. And and so, like, my roots and the sort of foundation of what I believe to be Jewish architecture would have to stem, um, at least in a modern sense, from the work that he um, left for us. I want to go further into Heschel for a moment. You talk about uh, Heschel's idea about the Sabbath as a cathedral or... Um, Jewish life existing in time. Um, you talk about um, your architecture existing, I think the phrase is uh, in a river of time as opposed to necessarily being situated in a particular space. And yet I know that your work, certainly in San Francisco, is predicated on uh, an intimate dialogue with the immediate physical context. Um, I'm not suggesting that that's a contradiction, but there's something interesting about those two things. How, how do those two things work together for you in your mind? Um, you know, the one thing I think is the um, contemporary quality of my work, that it's about a moment in time, this moment in time. But obviously, you know, buildings have um, a way of hanging around for a long time. But I also want to accept the kind of... Um, life of time in the building. So, for example, you know, the sort of changes that people make to buildings, um, the way materials change. I, I recently built a house um, in San Alsoma 
out of a material called um, Corten steel. And when you first put it up, it just looks like black steel. Gradually it starts to rust. And each time I visit the house, the rust deepens and the the age of the house improves it. I'm very interested in um, ways to think about buildings that um, use time to get better rather than decay, which is why you know I choose certain materials to build out of. For example, um, a material that I work with a lot is concrete. And concrete has um, a quality because it's completely consistent um, all the way through. It has no surface. So it actually can't decompose. A lot of the materials that are part of the contemporary palette of building are thin and um, like facings or surfacings. Or, whereas, you know, I like materials that have um, consistency all the way through and are solid. And in that sense, absorb time like a piece of wood, which, you know, can get better and better with age because like a beautiful wooden floor will show its use through time and will sort of improve. So, I mean, I like to think about ways to build where time is actually um, an enhancer rather than, you know, something that uh, causes decay. It's, you know, it's not always possible. I mentioned before that every building is major kind of reality or constraint is the economy that it lives in and how um, it uses money and resources to get built. So, you know, sometimes one has to make choices but that don't allow that. But ideally, that's what I would like to think about. You talked about uh, the memorial in, in Boston and where there are these six towers, each one representing one of the six uh, death camps and also representing the six million Jews who were killed, and when you go inside one of these towers, you are surrounded or enveloped by the names of all the people, and there are one million names etched into each of it's these. It's actually numbers. They're actually numbers, ah, not the names. Um, so uh, the, the question I have has to do with the idea of um, the way in which Jews have lived metaphorically inside of text for all their years. We talked before about... Um, Jews are not a, a spatial, they're any kind of anti-spatial people, um, and that when they've been in diaspora, they've basically lived inside of texts, inside of books. This museum, the Contemporary Jewish Museum, is composed of these two letters, the Chet and the Yud. So everything that happens here happens inside of text. Um, and I wonder what role text plays for you and whether you... Um, that literal idea of Jews living within text or being enveloped by text uh, resonates in any way? I, I feel that the use of text in buildings and as part of um, buildings is extremely important in the sense of, um, you know, being able to communicate directly. And, for example, the memorial, I think, is enhanced, you know, enormously through the text. Actually, if you went there without the text, you probably would have a completely different experience and may not even have any idea of what the meanings were that you were being experiencing. And the text that's inside the towers are first-person accounts. The texts from- are just little narratives about 
um, someone who found a raspberry at the fence. I mean, they actually tried to focus on the most ordinary um, things rather than the immense sort of horror that everybody um, experienced. You know, they they were the humanizing sort of things that anyone could relate to. And when you realize what um, a vast kind of experience um, finding a raspberry near the fence could be to a starving person, I mean, it's sort of a way to communicate to everybody. So it wasn't it wasn't about finding texts that would hammer home the you know, gunshots and and gas and, you know, all of the horror. So, um, I mean, I think in that particular... There, 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 there are many layers of text in that memorial. Like when you enter and when you leave, there, one is the text of Pastor Nimoy, you know, first they came for the... I mean, so that it kind of communicates the universality of the Holocaust, not as an event that happened to the Jews in the war, but that there's a responsibility always. So, And, you know, then there's a historic sort of narrative as you walk from tower to tower that explains um, something of the time. And then there's the specific um, narratives in each tower, and then there's the names of the death camps. And So, I mean, I feel like there's a there's a direct use of text as um, a way to communicate. The The use of text as a sort of abstraction to create the form of a building is something else, and I don't really understand its value. So, you know, I, I mean, it, it is a way to create a narrative about a building. I don't think it's got much to do with the um, Judaic... Um, idea of uh, the absence of figuration. I think, like making a figure out of a text, is still uh, a, a sort of questionable operation in relation to the second commandment. Um, so, you know, I don't really understand that uh, proposition. So it's both heretical and a novelty. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand. I don't think it gets to the essence of what Jewish space is about, which is the space of time, let's say. The the space that's not about figuration, but, you know, the space that's about opportunity. Uh, well, we just heard you um, speak as well, wonderful talk, um, and you kind of closed as an afterthought with the notion that you don't care about novelty. Could you talk a little bit about um, what that means? Um, you know, like, uh, well, of course, I like new things, and I, I love surprise and all of those things. But, um, you know, in terms of my work, I would say that an interesting model for me of um, architect, architecture since modernism would be Mies van der Rohe. And the work that Mies produced when he came to America was a, a steady refinement of a, a very kind of um, basic typology, which is actually the building block of the American city. He had an enormous impact on architecture by inventing the sort of uh, prototype tower for the modern era. And it was, in a sense, the building block of almost every city. Um, he he always said you don't you can't have a new architecture every monday morning that you know basically 
you need to evolve things and develop. Of course, he was a radical person that produced brilliant, like breathtaking things that had never been seen. The Barcelona Pavilion, <clears throat> which, I mean, if if you see it, you, it's hard to imagine where it came from or how anyone could have thought of it. It's so radical. But on the other hand, he did this body of work that was about like uh, the building blocks of cities that he gave a, a kind of formula to. We have certain strategies that we use, for example, in the way we do uh, multifamily housing, because those are, you know, those are generics. It's like you make a house for anybody and everybody, and you never know who the person is. So, you know, like, how do you improve the bathrooms? How do you improve the kitchens? How do you make better, like, free space that they can kind of claim by the way they shift around their furniture? You know, how can they design their apartment just by moving the couch or, like, locating the table? And so, you know, and, and so, like, in that body of work that I'm evolving and working on, um, you know, it's very small things. It's like where you put the door into the bathroom or where the sink is or like where the light of the sink is. I mean, you're working with very, um, you know, like few components really, but you want to make them as meaningful and, you know, like full of opportunity for the occupant as possible. So I guess, you know, like sometimes you hear architects say, oh, I did a housing project and every unit's different. I mean, I think that's a stupid idea because you, each person only lives in one unit. So what do they care? As long as every unit's good, they don't have to be different. It's just that you have to make everyone really, really habitable, comfortable, um, you know, adaptable, whatever. Mm -hmm. Was that the philosophy underpinning the uh, ritual objects as well, to be able to fit into any home and any um, form of tradition? Well... I think there's a slight other agenda with those as well, which is that, um, you know, the, they they have a neutrality. You know, I describe them as instruments. And, I mean, there's something sort of cold about the word instrument. You think of it as sort of surgical or whatever. But um, I, I think of them as, as instruments lacking in sentiment or um, style, that they purely about their function. But of course, like, you know, they are in a certain sense like uh, abstract, which might not make them fit in, um, you know, everybody's home. I, I certainly would like to think of those objects as part of a sort of mentality of um, design that's, that's contemporary and beautiful. Stanley Sadowitz, we thank you. Thank you.